Thank you. It is it's good to be here this morning. I got to say though, the uh, the kids leaving, that's awesome. It's like I, I've never seen that. I've never been in a church that did that before. And I know all of us as parents, like when the kids are leaving. You guys remember that movie um, Chariots of Fire? And they're running on the beach and hair's going everywhere. That's what it looks like for us as parents, right? All our little kids, do, 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 running down the hallway. And they get out the doors, and all of a sudden, Catherine sees a scene from Jurassic Park. It's like, Rawr! So, So it's, from our perspective, it's great to see that happen. From Catherine's, she's probably uh, slightly overwhelmed at moments, I would guess. Um, clearly, I'm not here to talk about being the children's pastor, because that's uh, viewing our kids as dinosaurs is probably not what we want in children's ministry. Um, but I do have a confession for you. I need to tell you up front. I'm going to confess this. I am not a Canadian. <laughs> Why is that funny? <laughs> is there something that you look at and you go, yeah, well, yeah, you, you didn't need to say that. Um, no, I, I, my guess is you guys can probably look and, and see and, and say, well, yeah, you're not Canadian. And it's simply because culture is in all of us, right? No matter who we are, no matter where we're from, that culture that we live in kind of gets ingrained and infused deep into our personality and our being. It shows up in like mannerisms and it shows up in how we eat. Like, I don't eat poutine. Um, you guys probably don't eat collard greens. Um, but, but culture shows up. It gets real infused in us. And it's just something that innately we can see. It's like I can tell the culture you live in, the society you live in, just by watching you, getting to know you, listening to you talk. Um, I use correct uh, English with words like y'all. And you guys use improper English with words like you guys. Um, but, but culture shows up in all these things. And so here's what I'm hoping this morning. I'm hoping this morning that what I can help you see is that there's a deeper, greater commonality in the body of Christ that transcends all of that, that transcends borders, that transcends culture, that transcends society. The text we're going to look at today is going to be, I'm sorry, I'm driving you crazy with the camera. I told you beforehand though that I like to roam. So <laughs> I'll try to roam slowly. Um, but what the text we're going to look at today is Matthew 4.17. But I need to give you some context for that. So I want to read the first 11 verses of Matthew 4 to you, and then we will look at our text that we're going to examine today which is uh, verse 17. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Matthew 4. We're going to start at verse 1 and read through verse 11. Um, I'm going to invite you, if you don't mind, to just stand up in reverence to God's Word as we read this. So you can follow along with me. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot 
against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister him. Now we jump down to verse 17. From that time forward, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You can have a seat as I pray. Father, I just ask that, that you would open this text, that you would be in the words that I speak, that if I in my ignorance speak anything that's less than the fullness of your truth, don't let it settle in hearts, ears, or minds today, but let only the fullness of your truth stand as we listen to your word. Amen. So the first sermon Jesus preached is in Matthew 4, 17, the very first sermon. He comes out from being tempted by Satan. He starts to walk around. He's gathering his followers, and he preaches a sermon, a sermon that you would love for me to preach today because it's one line, and that is this. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so here's what he's doing in that message. He's saying, look, everybody understand this. The arrival of the kingdom of heaven has come. It's accessible. It's here. You can walk into it. It's available. And so here's what we know from that message, that the kingdom of heaven is not a place. It's not people. It's a person. And that person is Jesus. And so what I want to do is I want to define what a kingdom is. A kingdom basically, in the broadest definition, is the place where what a king wills and desires to be done is actually done. The place where what a king wills and desires to be done is actually done. And so that's how we have Jesus as the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God arriving, because he lived in constant alignment with God's will. He lived out a life that said, what God wills and desires will be done in me in all things. And so to be formed in thought, desire, alignment, and action by the reign of God in the places where I have influence and sway is to be in the kingdom of heaven. So as God's wills, will and desires become something that I align with, that I pursue, I'm actually living in the kingdom of heaven. Now there's three kingdoms that we have to deal with that are in these verses. Well, two in these verses and one in what we're going to talk about that follows in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. The first kingdom is the kingdom of Satan. And that's what Jesus encountered in Matthew, 1, uh, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Satan coming to him and saying, hey, I have this kingdom where I rule. You know this. The Father's given me rule over this for right now. And I'm going to invite you into it. And here's the way in. You're hungry? Turn those stones into bread. You think you can be hurt? Go ahead and jump and prove that you can't be hurt. You wanna be, be in control? You wanna lead? You wanna have sway over everything? It's mine, I can give it to you, just bow down and worship me. And so Jesus refused to place himself under the rule of the kingdom of Satan. Each of his responses to Satan's temptations was to reaffirm that he is in the kingdom of God. That the space that he gets to rule will only be ruled by his alignment and his desire for God's will. And so 
what he's saying when he preaches this sermon is he's introducing the kingdom of God. So he deals with the kingdom of Satan. He defeats it in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, simply by saying, no, I won't allow it to sway me. I won't allow it to guide me and steer me. I will not live under the rule of you because I'm going to live under the rule of God, which is the second kingdom we have to deal with, right? The kingdom of God. And that's what he proclaims in Matthew 4, 17. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. If something's at hand, I can grab it. I can touch it. It's available. So what he's saying is it's accessible. It's a place you can live in now. And so the rule and reign of God, active and present, has arrived. That's the kingdom of God. But where is it? Well, it's in the very heart and soul and mind and body of Jesus. So when he shows up and says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he's saying is this. God's active, present, available, accessible reign, the place where what God wants done will be done, is here, and it's in me. Now, I had this picture of heaven where, like, you know those touch screens? You can go to, like, a museum or something. You touch the screen, and you see these scenes. I have a picture of heaven that there's touch screens there. We can like go through the gospels and things and touch and watch the scene. And I wonder if when I push that screen and see this scene come up of Jesus going, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I wonder if it's going to look like this. I wonder if he's going to go, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I wonder if that's what's going to happen when I, when I look at this scene. Because what he's saying is the kingdom of heaven is here, and it's here in the form of a person. And that person is named Jesus, the Messiah, the God incarnate, the human being who will let all that God wants and wills and desires rule and reign in his heart, in his soul, in his mind, in his body. Which then means for the rest of us, we can access it. It was accessible when he preached this sermon 2,000 years ago, and guess what? It's still accessible today. And so we get in John 5, 19 and 20, we get Jesus saying, therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. Why can't he do anything because of, uh, of himself? Because his thoughts, his desires, his actions are aligned perfectly with God's. He's not saying it's impossible for him to do anything of himself. He very well could. Satan invited him into that in the first 11 verses of Matthew 4. What he's saying is it's impossible from my perspective because I refuse, I won't do anything that's not aligned fully with the Father, submitted to his kingdom. It goes on in those verses and it says, for the Father loves and so love is the motivation. It's the bond of alignment with the kingdom of God. Because we're loved of God, we now have this bond with him in his kingdom to say, no, you know what I want to do? I want to align my rule over my kingdom. Sometimes it's very small, sometimes it's bigger. You know, our kingdom expands as we get married and we develop friendships and we have children and we get jobs. Our sphere of influence expands. And so we can say what Jesus said, because of love, I'm going to bind my kingdom to God's kingdom and align my desire, my will, my thoughts, my feelings with the reality and truth of God. So that the kingdom's accessible, still accessible. And then he goes on at the end of these verses, he says, so that you will be amazed. Isn't that interesting? You're gonna do greater works than I did so that you will be amazed. Think about that. It's what James 
was talking about, being enthralled with God, drawn to God, infatuated by God, contemplating his kingdom. And so the reality is the bond of love that had Jesus perfectly aligned with the kingdom of God is available to us, and we can be perfectly aligned with the kingdom of God through enthrallment and amazement by who God is and what he does. And so if life in the kingdom of heaven is, is a result of Jesus' alignment with heart, soul, mind, and body with God's will and desires, guess what? Every one of us in this room has a heart, a soul, a mind, and a body. To some degree or another, we have sway over that. Now, granted, history, experiences, traumas may, may limit the sway we have over ourselves to some degree or another, but healing fixes that, and Jesus is the healer. So it makes sense that we can also live into the kingdom of God now by aligning our heart, soul, mind, and body with God's will the way Jesus did. That's why Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Strength is the place where force of will becomes physical and is manifest through our bodies. Now, the third kingdom we've got to deal with is the kingdom of self. Paul dealt with the kingdom of self really well in Romans 7. Right? You remember in Romans 7, Paul's going through those verbal gymnastics of, I don't do the thing I want to do, and I do the very thing I don't want to do, and so if I don't do the thing I want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me that's in my flesh. And, and so the kingdom of self is really outlined very well in Romans 7 by Paul. What he's telling us is, look, this is, this is the place where I live, man. This is the place I live. I live in this place where I want to seek God's kingdom, but I also want to seek mine. And so there's this constant collision. And I don't do the thing I want to do. And I, and I do the thing I don't want to do. And so Paul's inviting us into the throne room of his kingdom of self, in, in essence, in Romans 7. Saying this is what it looks like behind the scenes. Anybody identify with that? Anybody feel that? I feel it. I feel it all the time. And you walk into situations and, and something happens and you do something, you're like, man, why would I do that? I don't even want to do that. Why would I do that? Well, the reason you would do it is because your kingdom of self somehow took sway and control in that moment instead of the kingdom of God. Because none of us can be perfectly aligned with God's will and desire all the time. But what we can do is recognize when we're not and say, huh, if my goal is alignment with God's kingdom, I got to do something here. What is that? Well, we're going to find out in just a minute what that thing is. But here's the thing. The kingdom of self tells us all the things that Satan offered Jesus. The kingdom of self says you can have those things, but you got to get them, you got to get them yourself. So, so we seek satisfaction in our own strength and in our own will and in our own timing. That's what Satan offered Jesus when he said, turn these breads to stone. He's basically telling Jesus, you can satisfy your hunger by yourself if you'll just do it on your own. You can satisfy it. We seek security by attempting to manipulate God, which is what Satan invited Jesus into doing when he said, throw yourself off the temple. His angels, do you see that? His angels will catch you. So in essence, what Satan is saying, look, if God is who God says he is, if you're disobedient, by throwing yourself off this, he's obligated still to protect you. And the reality is that's not true. 
God is under no obligation to us because of what we do. He's under obligation to us because of who he is. That's God's obligation. And so we do that too, right? I'm gonna find a way to make myself feel secure. I'm gonna find my own security. I'm gonna increase my strength and power. And I'm gonna make myself feel safe. And then finally, Satan says this, why don't you make yourself significant? Make much of yourself. And you can do that by worshiping me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. You'll rule over all of them. Really what we see in this invitation from Satan is what's the true essence of sin. See, a lot of times we get stuck in this mindset that sin is bad behavior. No, bad behavior is the result of sin. Bad behavior isn't sin, it's the result of sin. Because sin, unfortunately for all of us, goes to a deeper place than just our behavior. It goes to our heart. And so here's what sin is. Sin is me saying, I'm going to get what I want, what God has promised me, in my own strength, in my own timing, and on my own terms for my own purposes. Do you see that that's what Satan invited Jesus into doing? That's the temptation. You can get all the stuff that God promised you. You can have it on your own terms. You can have it in your own timing. You can have it in your own strength. And oh, by the way, it'll serve you. And Jesus looks at Satan and says, no, I'm not doing this. I know God's faithful. I know he's good. I know he's true. I know he's sovereign. And he promised me these things. But he didn't promise me these things for my glory. He promised me these things for his glory. And I'm not going to forget that. And so we get angels coming and ministering to Jesus and Satan walking away and going, well, I'll just try another time. I'll just try another time. You read on through the Gospels and what you find is that other time came in the garden the night before Jesus died. Satan shows up again. And the temptation that time was, don't do it. Just don't do it. Just walk away. You don't have to do this. And see, that temptation came into the world all the way back in Genesis 3-5 when Satan looked at Adam and Eve and said this, you know why God told you not to eat from that tree? Because he knows when you eat from it, your eyes are going to be open and you will become like God. Think about that for a minute. You will become like God. That is the essence. That is the foundation of all of the evil in our lives and in our world. Because we say, if I will rule my kingdom the way I want to, I will be like God. I'll be like God, in, at least in my kingdom. I'll be the God of my kingdom. Now, I can't be God of the whole, everybody else's kingdom in the entire world, but I can be God of my kingdom. And you know what? For right now, that's enough. That's enough for me right now. Because then I'll feel safe. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll matter. I'll be significant in the world. And so I want to recap real briefly what these three kingdoms are. The, the, the kingdoms we have to deal with in the world are the kingdom of Satan, which is a defeated kingdom, still active but defeated. The kingdom of self, which is not a defeated kingdom. It's very much active and fighting to take ground, to hold sway and control in the kingdom of God. Now, we have a choice. The choice we face each day is not, am I going to live in the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God? The choice we face each day is, am I going to live in the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God? Is my life going to be a life that says, the place that I rule, where I have sway, is going to be perfectly aligned with God? Am I going to seek that? Am I going to pursue it? Am I going to want what he wants? Am I going to desire what he desires? Am I going to will what he wills? 
That's how we live into the kingdom of God. It's relatively simple when you think about it, and it's relatively hard in practice because deep down inside each of us is this sense of you will be like God. And we like that idea. Here's the problem with being like God. Could you imagine if I was God? Could you imagine? Could you imagine the disastrous results of that? See, we got a whole catalog of human history that says when we as human beings with our fallen, destructive, selfish nature rule, bad things happen. It's just the reality. And so how do we avoid falling into ruling that kingdom in such a way that we, we get the results that we've had since the dawn of humanity? Well, simple. Jesus tells us that in the beginning of his first sermon. Repent. Repent. Now, here's the thing with that word repent. Unfortunately, in Western culture, the word repent is stop doing this and start doing that. But in Greek culture, in first century Hebrew culture, and in the Greek language, the word repent is the word metanoia. You know what that means? It means to think differently. Think about that. Jesus is saying at the beginning of this, hey, look, if you would just think differently, you'd live in the kingdom of God. First sermon he ever preached. It's the first sermon he ever preached. And that lines up with what Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So how do I change? I renew my mind. Transformation comes in thought renewal, not behavioral renewal. Hopefully that takes a little bit of pressure off if you're like me and you got all these behaviors that have been there for a while and they become ingrained patterns in your life. And, and you try and try and try and try and all you get is frustrated. And then all of a sudden something clicks and you go, wait, the problem is not what I'm doing. The problem is how I think about what I'm doing. Let me think of it differently. Let me think of it in terms of the reality that Jesus brings into the world, not the reality that I impose on the world. Because my reality isn't reality. My reality is what I want. And how do I make it happen? And so repentance is first and foremost a mental activity, which means it is a process of learning and studying and praying and reading and seeking discernment from the Holy Spirit, having conversations with other people, finding somebody who can walk with you and lead you deeper into God's truth. It's thinking rightly about God and yourself and others. So mind renewal is, is believing what Jesus believes thinking what Jesus thinks, desiring what Jesus desires, seeing how Jesus sees. That's what happens in repentance. Gradually, incrementally, progressively over time, our minds begin to say, no, I'm going to let reality be what you say it is. And that's what we get in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew uh, chapters five through seven, and we can't deal with all that today. There's been volumes of books written on the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to tell you that Jesus, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, gives us the port of entry into the kingdom of God. And it's in Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Listen to this. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice that the word is there. Present tense. For theirs is, not will be, but is the kingdom of heaven. 
When we become poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is ours now. And so here's what Jesus is doing. He's revealing access, the gateway by which we go into the, the kingdom of heaven. And it's the place, where, remember the kingdom, is the place where God rules and reigns. And that doorway, that gate, is through spiritual poverty. Now, in an individualist society where, where we value those who can stand on their own two feet and can make things happen and do so much, poor in spirit is kind of a dirty word. Because here's what it actually means. It means to stand before God and say, I am not God, you are. And we can say that with mental assent, but my question is, can we experience it deep in our hearts? Because think about that. If Genesis 3-5 is where the problem came into the world, where the kingdom lost its rule because Adam and Eve said, I can be like God, then wouldn't it make sense that the place where the kingdom is reestablished is when we say, I am not God? Do you see how Matthew 5.3 unravels and undoes Genesis 3.5? That should be really good news. Because we tend to think that if I'm going to live in the kingdom, then what i got to do is white knuckle and claw my way in there. And the reality is all i got to do is stand before the mirror every day, look at the person standing and go, hey, I want to remind you today, you are not God. You are not God. And then we get in the car and we start driving and somebody's going slow in front of us and we go, you got to get out of the way because I'm God. <laughs> or somebody's taking too, line in the check, too long in the checkout line. You got to move because I'm God. Or the waitress messes up our order. You got to serve me correctly because I'm God. Or we go to school and somebody you know, makes us angry and we react. And we go, but you don't understand I'm God. So that, that's the struggle. Being poor in spirit unravels the truth, the reality of the fall. The fall is now undone. Why? Because I'm poor in spirit. And so, in, in essence, what Satan did was convince Adam and Eve to bemoan the fact that they weren't God instead of living into the reality and the graciousness of the fact that they're not God. Because when you have authority and you have power, there are a lot of times your head hits the pillow, but your eyes don't close. I don't think any of us would want that kind of authority. And so the invitation from God to say, no, I'm God and you're not, is an invitation of grace. It's an invitation of peace. It's an invitation of rest. All we have to do is live into that same reality. And so here's the thing. Do you want to begin to walk into the kingdom of heaven? Well, there's a couple realizations we have to come to. One is in Romans 7. There's two things we need to recognize if we're going to walk in the kingdom of heaven. One is in Romans 7. Paul is openly lamenting throughout Romans 7 the fact that he is living into the kingdom of himself. And it leads him to this conclusion in verse 24. Wretched man that I am. So he goes through all of Romans 7. Now, this is Paul, right? We look at Paul and, you know, we name our kids after him because we're like, everybody needs to be like Paul. And Paul does a little self-examination and comes to the conclusion, I'm just wretched. I'm wretched. Just a wretched person. But then, but then, because some of us, I know this. I know that some of us in this room today, we hear that phrase and we go, well, yeah, I could have told you that. I'm wretched. 
I had a father who told me that all my childhood. I had kids at school who reminded me of that every day. I got people at work who mistreat me who remind me of that every day. My abuser made sure I'd never forget that till the day I died. But that's not the wretchedness Paul's talking about. And if all he did was give us the fact that we're wretched, we're stuck. We're stuck. Because some of us, our life experience says, yeah, I'm wretched. I'm wretched. I've been reminded of that all too often. But here's what Paul does. Right after he says, wretched man that I am, he poses a question that can undo our wretchedness. And here's the question. Who will set me free from this body of death? You ever feel like you're trapped in a body of death because of your wretchedness? You ever feel like the world is just a place that's waiting for you to wither and go away because you're so wretched? Paul asks that question because he knows there's a divine solution to our wretchedness, and this is the solution. And that solution that he gives comes crashing in to his wretchedness, collides with it, breaks it down. It gives a resounding clang as that wretchedness just falls away. And Paul begins to live into his joy. And that, that, this solution resolves every lament. It removes every heartache. It washes away every sense of shame. And it brings you a sense of worth in the eyes of God that tells you it doesn't matter what my father, my abuser, my teacher, my classmates say about me. I now know this at a place that is so deep in my heart, it's all I'm ever going to live out. And that answer is this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul goes, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. All of his shame, all of his worthlessness, all of his guilt gets washed away in that one half of a verse. Now I want you to think about that verse and if you, if you got your Bible open, look at it because there's one little thing in there that I love. It's the punctuation. Paul concludes that statement with an exclamation point. Do you understand what's happening there? He's not simply jotting down some theological construct or idea that, that he came to realize and jotting it down like it's a textbook. He's actually shouting it out. It's an expression of his emotion and his intellect and of intimacy and his hope and his resolve to live into the kingdom of God. In essence, what he's saying is this, who can save me from this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I just have a picture of him setting the pin down and getting up and dancing around the room, if Paul could dance. But can you see that in this? That exclamation point is so important in this verse because it washed away all that stuff of I want to be God. It made him poor in spirit. And so his abiding in the kingdom of God made that statement a reality that's unshakable, that cannot be removed. And guess what? If we abide in the kingdom of God like we're invited to in Matthew 4.17, that's true for us. That can be true for us too. Somebody comes up and goes, you're a horrible person. Oh, I'm all that and much more. You don't even know. You haven't been watching closely. But I know the one who can save me from this body of death. Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord.
And so here's where all this comes together. In Paul's statement in Romans, here's what he's doing. He's not saying I'm a citizen of the kingdom of Israel or I'm a citizen of the kingdom of Rome. All his other identities are gone. They all washed away. The only identity he has is I am God's beloved in Christ. That's the only identity he has. The hyphenations are gone. He has a vision of a church, the capital C church, that's not made up of American Christians or Canadian Christians or Ukrainian Christians and Russian Christians or First Nations Christians and European Christians or white Christians and black Christians or any other hyphenated Christian identity. His vision is of a global community of Christians that can stand in unity and oneness in God because Jesus came along and said, the kingdom is at hand. You can access it, come into it now. Now, I want to tell you the dirty little secret about this idea of unity in the church. This is the most important thing we have. And I'm going to tell you right, why right now from the mouth of Jesus in John 17, verses 20 and 21. Listen to this. I am not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that... The world may believe that you sent me. We do a lot to evangelize, but what about unity? What about oneness? What about laying aside all of our differences of preference and opinion, of nationality and geography and culture and society, and just saying, you know what? I want the world to know that God sent Jesus, therefore I'm going to be one with you. You irritate me. You bother me. You don't fit neatly into the world that I want to rule and govern, but I'm going to be one with you so that they may know that Jesus was sent. That's Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God in my preferences, in my desires, in my ideas, in my thoughts, in my wants. Seek first the kingdom of God. And so I want you to consider and contemplate this idea that there's three kingdoms at work in the world that we have to deal with. The kingdom of Satan. And I would go so far as to say that for the most part, there's nobody in this room seeking that kingdom. If you're seeking the kingdom of Satan, you're asleep right now. You're not in church. You're just getting home from last night. You've already decided all I want is what's evil and wrong, despicable. Now, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self are where we need to go. Kingdom of self is one that we're all dealing with. We have to be able to say, no, I'm, I'm going to align my wants, my will, my desire, my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength with the kingdom of God and seek that to the best that I can in this moment here now. And when I can't, I'll try again. And the kingdom of God, the place where we can all live free. Now, I like every sermon to end with one question. I would love for every sermon that's ever preached to end with this same question. Knowing what you now know, how shall you live? So that's the question I want you to take away today. Knowing what we just talked about, what I believe God has presented to us and revealed to us, knowing what we now know, how shall we live? Because in evangelical circles, we love to ask the question, if you died tonight, where would you go? Well, here's my question for you. If you don't die tonight, how are you going to live tomorrow? If you don't die tonight, how are you going to live tomorrow? That should be our question every day. 
Our head should hit the pillow and, and we should go to God through his spirit in the name of Christ and say, Lord, if I don't die tonight, how am I going to live tomorrow? And so let me pray for you. But I want you to contemplate that question. Knowing what I now know, how shall I live? Father, I just thank you for this time, this place, this church, these people, God. I pray that your word, as it's been presented, is fully true, that, that I have not left anything out or watered down anything. And Father, I pray that, that it's active, that it presses into our hearts and minds, that it aligns our souls with you, and it becomes an active force in our bodies to change this community, to change our families, and to change this world. And we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.